So for those of you that have not been here or perhaps just have slept since last time we met, like me, uh, may have forgotten what we've talked about. We've been talking about meekness and defining it, thinking about it, seeking to be meek. Uh, So we've said things like this, that meekness is about patiently enduring the present in light of the future, right? Patiently enduring the present in light of the future, that meekness automatically implies some sort of suffering, right? Meekness implies that a person has an enemy or is being persecuted or is afflicted. In fact, do you remember uh, the, yeah, that's what we said last week too, the meek are afflicted, but they surrender their enemies to God. They trust God to deal with their enemies. Anybody remember the Hebrew word for meek? Anav, good job, Anav, Anav. And oftentimes it's not translated meek because there's an English word meek and there's a Hebrew word Anav. And we've got overlap of meaning, right? If we want to understand what Jesus meant when he said, Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Or what the psalmist said when he originally said those things, that the meek shall inherit the land, that we we not only have to understand the English word meek, more importantly, we have to understand the Hebrew word anav, because those are the people, the anav, are the people to whom these promises are made. And so we talked about how anav people are afflicted people, they're poor people, they're persecuted people, they're people that have enemies. But they are people that endure the mistreatment of their enemies in the present in light of the, what? The future, right? In light of the future. Because they know that the wicked are, are their time is limited. They're just a mist. They're, they're just a, a fleeting shadow. They're, they will not last. Their empires, their rule, their reign, their persecution will not last. It will not endure. That God will be victorious and that the enemies will be brought down. And that's true for the Anav of every generation, right? Even if, even if the Anav die, God will raise them from the dead, right? And that's, that's the promises that even in the Hebrew scriptures, even in the Old Testament, that they believed and held on to. So the afflicted, the meek, the Anav, surrender their enemies to God. Sometimes we see a word, we see meek translated as humble, Humble, And as I was doing some research on Anav, it occurred to me why some, especially some of the older translations, translate it as humble. Um, there's two different ways that we can use the word humble, right? One way is sort of the way we normally think of, which means you don't think very highly of yourself or you don't think too highly of yourself, right? Humble, so, you know, not being proud, so the opposite of proud. But there's another way that we use the word humble, right? We say things like, Welcome to my humble abode. Now, sometimes we kind of say that tongue-in-cheek, I guess. But what do we mean when we say welcome, or what, what does it mean to say welcome to my humble abode? What are you saying about your abode? Sorry. Your house is humble. Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't mean it doesn't have any pride, right? What does it mean? It's what? Modest, yeah, modest, yeah, that's, that's another good word. And it's funny how that kind of has those two terms, right? It means that it's not, it's not nice, right? It's not fancy. There's nothing fancy about it, right? In fact, if you took it to the nth degree, it would mean that it, you kind of live in a shack, right? We may not mean that when we say, welcome to my humble abode, but that's what it means. In, in fact, if you say that somebody came from a very humble background, 
we mean that he grew up or she grew up poor. You know, they didn't grow up with a lot of means, right? And so humble now tends to mean not having pride, but in kind of an archaic usage of the word, but it also still, you know, still endures to some extent today, means what anav means, right? It means poor. It means not somebody on the top of the ladder, not somebody with means, not somebody with strength, not somebody uh, that's rich and powerful and strong, but somebody that's, that's poor, that comes from a humble background. And so that's very similar to the way that anav is used. And so when we read humble, that Moses, for instance, and I think you're going to talk about that next week, but when we read about Moses being humble or meek, it doesn't necessarily mean that he you know, didn't have any pride, although I think that goes hand in hand with this, but it means this kind of thing, right? That he trusts, that we trust, that the Anav trust in God. We endure the present in light of the future. So with that in mind, look at uh, Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1. Isaiah 61 and verse 1. So meekness is about enduring poverty, affliction, persecution, hardship, Without retaliation, without vengeance, without doing evil to replenish what we don't have, trusting God to make things right, trusting God to keep his promises, trusting God to deliver us. And then in Isaiah 61 in verse 1, and you're going to recognize this passage even if you're not super familiar with Isaiah, Isaiah says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Why do we recognize that? Who who else said that? Jesus, right? In Luke chapter 4, Jesus gets up in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, right? And he gets the Isaiah scroll and he scrolls it out to the place where Isaiah wrote this. And he reads from Isaiah and he says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Is that a pretty bold thing to read? So he reads this passage. After he reads it, he sits down. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has, what? Anointed me. Now, what do we call the anointed one? What's the Hebrew word for the anointed one? That's the Greek word, right? Christ. What's the Hebrew word? Messiah, right? That's exactly what this is saying. The Lord God The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Now, most of the time, anointed means to like smear oil on someone's head. And and to whom did they smear oil on their head? Kings, yes, kings. And who else? Priests, right? Priests and kings. And and in this case, it's saying that the the Lord has anointed me with, with, I want to say what, but with who? With whom? With the Spirit, right? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He's chosen me. He's anointed me with His Spirit to do what? To bring, what does it say? Good news. Now, the Hebrew word is basar. What do do we normally, what's our English word for good news? Gospel, right? In Greek, it's euangelion, right? Good news. This is the Messiah, Right? The Messiah is saying, I'm the anointed one. The Spirit has been given to me, and the Spirit, God has chosen me and anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news, to bring good news to whom? What group of people? The, the poor. And what do you suppose is the Hebrew word there? 
the anav, right? The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring euangelion, to bring basar, to bring good news to the poor, to bring good news to the afflicted, to bring good news to those who have patiently endured the present because they could see the future. Those who patiently endured affliction and persecution and suffering and affliction, I have come to say your patience is paying off. I have come to say good news. I have come to say God keeps his promises, right? Now, if we were to read the whole book of Isaiah, would we find, would we find good news in Isaiah? Yes, would we find some, might look at it as bad news in Isaiah? Yes, right? So Isaiah lives during, you remember the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, right? And so Israel is about to fall to what empire? Pop quiz night, right? Yeah, Assyria, right? So Assyria is, is taking over and then the northern kingdom of Israel falls to Assyria during Isaiah's lifetime and then Judah is going to be right behind them, right? It's going to take a while before finally they fall to the Babylonians. But Isaiah says, listen, Judah, same thing's going to happen to you. Same thing's going to happen to Jerusalem. It's going to happen to us, God's people. Why? Because we've been prostitute and we've worshiped other gods and we've defied God and we've rebelled and because we've sinned and we're going to fall and God is going to punish us by these other powers but then he also says, but God will also judge them as well. God will judge Assyria, and God will judge Babylon, and God will bring those empires down as well. And eventually, eventually God will restore Zion. Eventually, God will come back to Zion to reign as king. In fact, if we were to look at another use of the word basar in Isaiah, I won't read you this whole chapter, but in Isaiah chapter 52, uh, it talks about, awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall be no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise, be seated, O Jerusalem, loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. If we skip down to verse 7, how beautiful, and you probably recognize this from Paul in Romans 10, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring, what? Good news, Basar, euangelion. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your king reigns. Your God, rather, reigns. God reigns as king. So for Isaiah... What's the basar? What's the euangelion? What's the good news? What's the gospel? Your God reigns. Your king. Your God reigns as king. Right? You've sinned. Because you've sinned, God will punish you. And because the other nations have sinned, God will punish them. And God will bring every act and every violence and every wickedness and every person who stomps on someone else, God will bring them down. And eventually God will bring peace and prosperity and your God will reign as king. 
And that's what Messiah is all about, isn't it? That's what the Messiah is saying. The Lord has anointed me to bring Basar, to bring Euangelion, to bring good news to the Anav, to the poor, to the afflicted, to the persecuted, to those who have waited patiently, who have trusted me with their enemies, who've surrendered their enemies to God. Eventually, Messiah will come, the anointed one will come, and will say, I'm here. And your patience has paid off. Good news. Your God reigns as king. Right? Your God reigns as king. Let's keep reading in Isaiah 61, verse, well, still in verse 1, end of verse 1. He has sent me, who is the me, who's talking? It's Isaiah writing, right? But but whose words are these? The Messiah, right? The Messiah, the anointed one, which we will find out later, of course, is Jesus. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Do you see how all of these terms and ideas are synonymous and go hand in hand with with a nav, right? The poor, the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, those who are bound. This is who the Messiah is coming to say, good news, you've been bound, you've been sick, you've been poor, you've been hurting, you've been trusting me to deal with your enemies, and I'm here. Your God reigns as king to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, jubilee year. The captives are set free, the slaves are set free, and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, why in the context of Basar, Euangelion, good news, your God reigns as king, why would he talk about the day of vengeance? Is, is God's vengeance, is that part of Euangelion, Basar, good news? Yes, absolutely it is, especially for the enough especially for the meek, for those that have been surrendering their enemies to God to say, God, I trust you. I'm not going to take vengeance on my enemies because vengeance is yours. Vengeance belongs to you. I will not take revenge. I will not be bitter. I will not steal in order to replenish what I've lost. I will trust you, even if it means I'm poor, even if it means I'm afflicted, even if it means I'm a captive, even if it means I'm hurting, even if it means I'm suffering, I will endure the present in light of the future, right? And all of these ideas, they're synonymous and go right along with the idea of the anab, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the vengeance of our God, so he will punish the evildoers who have been persecuting the meek, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, and they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. All the stuff that got knocked down and destroyed, it's going to be rebuilt. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. 
but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. This is good news, isn't it? Basar, euangelion, good news. All, all of the suffering that you've endured, your shame will turn into a double portion. Your dishonor will turn into rejoicing. Their land that they shall possess, you'll get a double portion. Who? The enough. The meek. Who at no time has it ever looked like to anybody except those with the eyes of faith, has it looked like they're going to be the winners. They're going to come out on top. They're going to be the ones to inherit the land. They're going to be the ones to have a double portion. They're the ones that their sorrow is going to turn to rejoicing. Nobody ever thinks that in any culture at any time about the enough. Do they? And you think about the people of Israel. The Assyrians come in and destroy them. Now, a lot of those people of Israel were wicked and idolatrous, but some of them weren't, were they? There was always a, what, is, what, is the, what did the prophets call the, the group of people that didn't turn to the idols? The, the remnant. There was always a remnant of anav people, of meek people who endured the present in light of the future. And they trusted, and they waited, and they were patient, and they waited, and they were patient. And then the people of Jerusalem endured Babylon coming and destroying them. And then eventually Babylon falls to the Medes and the Persians. And they get to go home, right? But if you read Nehemiah and Ezra, and you realize, okay, yeah, they went home. But there was still all kinds of fighting and bickering and hating. And the people of the land continued to persecute them. There was no Messiah who came to say, good news is here. Your God reigns as king. Now the days of peace and prosperity, it didn't happen. They came back to the land, but they were still essentially in exile. The, the Medes and the Persians still had them under their thumb, right? And then Alexander the Great comes and, and captures the world. And, and then you've got Syrian kings. Eventually, you have some Maccabees who kind of take back over, and Israel kind of has their own kingdom for a while, but that's not good. They're still killing and violence, and there is no Messiah to say your suffering is ended. Your, your patience and your endurance has paid off. I'm here. Your God reigns as king. And then eventually that was taken over by the Romans. And, and can you imagine the people of Jesus' day? They've been waiting and they've been waiting and they've been waiting. And every now and then somebody would rise up and they would say, well, I'm a Messiah. I'm the deliverer. I'm the one you're waiting for. And they'd lead a band of rebels out. And what would happen to them? Murdered, killed, crucified on crosses. Rome would say, see, this is what happens to people that think that they're messiahs. This is what, this is what happens to you, you freedom fighters. We, we stomp you out. We put you down. We're not going to put up with that. And then Jesus shows up and he reads this scroll. But instead of leading a band of freedom fighters, instead of grabbing swords and spears, 
he joins the Anav in their meekness, right? Verse 8, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels for as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Now that's something worth waiting for, isn't it? And so there was always this remnant of people that were waiting for the Messiah to show up, to announce God reigns as king, and I'm here to make sure that happens. And Jesus shows up, and he reads the scroll, and he sits down, and he says, I'm, I'm the anointed one. And I've come to announce and proclaim good news to the Anav, right? And then after he dies and he's buried and he's raised, people begin to believe the good news is true. The basar, the euangelion is true. And if that's true, that means God reigns as king. But... If that's true, where is, where is all of this? God has returned to Zion to reign as king. If this is true, what's changed? Has anything changed? That's what we're saying by gospel, isn't it? Good news. Good news. An event has happened that has forever changed the course of human history. Good news, something has happened and God has returned to Zion to reign as king. But yet, the wicked still seem to prosper and the meek still seem to perish, right? Are, are the anav, are the meek part of the reigning kingdom? Does Yahweh reign as king through the Messiah? Our answer is what? Yes. Yes. And you say, but it doesn't, it doesn't look that way, does it? And, and that's why the apostles would continue to encourage the people. That's because we walk by faith and not by sight. See, we believe we believe that in spite of appearances, something has changed forever. That the Messiah is at the right hand of God and that through his priestly, kingly work, God has returned to Zion. Not Zion like the physical Jerusalem, but the unseen city of God, right? That God reigns as king, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, the Messiah, and we believe that God is in charge of the world. 
And we believe that the anav, the meek, the gentle, those that entrust their enemies to God and endure the present in light of the future, that everything has changed for us. That we've been been told good news and that we've embraced good news, that we have already embraced the victory. And I just heard a story today that helps this to make sense to me and I think it'll help make sense to you. I I was having lunch with a guy, with a brother this afternoon and he told me this story. And so listen, I heard it at lunch. If you Google it and you find out it's not true, you know, blame that guy. But I didn't, I didn't fact check it, but it's a great story regardless. Um, I heard this story that, that there was this POW camp where American soldiers were being held during World War II um, in a German POW camp. And somehow the prisoners were able to piece together a radio from spare parts. And so they had this radio and they were listening in on the news and the events. And they heard about the German surrender three days before the German soldiers in charge of the camp heard about the surrender. So these soldiers, these prisoners, knew that the war was over and that they had won. And for three days, they remained prisoners, but they knew in their mind already, we've already won, you just don't know it yet. And that's the age in which we live. The good news has already been announced. The victory has already been been claimed. Victory has already been sealed. The fate of our enemies has already been established. It is irrevocable, right? And we are victors, even though right now it may not appear so. That's what the apostles mean when they say that our reward, our inheritance is in heaven. It is unseen. It is hidden right now. But one day it will be revealed, right? And that, that's what things like the, the revelation of John, the apocalypse, that's what apocalypse or revelation means. It means a revealing. It pulls back the curtains and he says, this is the truth. It looks like the beasts are going to win, but they won't. God reigns as king. Euangelion, Basar, good news. God has returned. God is in charge of the world and the meek will inherit everything that God has promised to them. So look, with that in mind, think about, what do you think about when you hear all of this? I think about this Sermon on the Mount or in Luke, the Sermon on the Plain. Look at Luke chapter 6 and verse 20. I have to keep an eye on the clock. I get wound up and I'll go over time. Luke 6, verse 20. Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, this is two chapters after he read the Isaiah scroll, right, in Nazareth. Blessed are you who are, what? Poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Does all of this sound exactly like what Isaiah said the good news was going to sound like? Right? Those who mourn, they'll be comforted. Right? Those who are hungry, they'll be satisfied. Those who weep, they will laugh. Blessed are you, Jesus says. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you 
and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. You are the ones to whom the kingdom belongs. And I know it doesn't look like that. It hasn't looked like that for 2,000 years. It didn't look like that before Jesus. But what do we have now as proof that the meek inherit the world? What do we have now as proof that those who are persecuted are actually the ones who are blessed? What do we have as proof now that those who weep will laugh, that those who are hungry will be satisfied, that those who are poor have the kingdom of God? We have the resurrection of the Messiah, don't we? And that changes everything. When Jesus gave his life to atone for us, he was buried in the tomb, and God raised him, Paul says, as the first fruits of the, of the resurrection, everything changed. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father. God is in charge of the world through Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So now, laugh if you want to, but the meek win. Laugh if you want to, but the poor win. Laugh if you want to, but the hungry win. Laugh if you want to, but the persecuted win. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Now, I mean, Jesus isn't talking about how much money you have in your bank account, is he? He's really contrasting the meek, the anav, the poor, the hungry, those who weep, those who hate you, those who exclude you, those who revile you, and, and the rich. Because assume here, the implication is, how did the rich become rich? By not being the enough, right? By not trusting God. And God's not going to take care of me. I got to look out for number one, right? God's not going to help me. I got to help myself. God's not going to fill my plate or fill my bank account. I got to take care of me. I'm not going to let anybody step on me. I'm not going to let anybody take advantage of me. I'm going to do what I got to do regardless of what happens. I'm going to step on whoever I need to step on. That was true in first century Palestine. That's true today. That it's very easy to have that type of mentality, isn't it? But those of us who embrace the basar, the good news, we know that those people need to hear woe. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic either. This is meekness, right? This is meekness. The only people who can really do this, who can really love their enemies, pray for those who persecute them, those that can turn the other cheek, are those that can endure the present in light of the future. Don't you suppose that if that story about the POW camp is true, 
it would be a whole lot easier enduring mistreatment during those three days than it was the three days before that, wouldn't it? Because you know, take your shots now, man, because it's almost over. And then three days later, they woke up and their enemies were all gone. That's what we embrace by faith now. That's what we embrace by faith now. You say, well, it doesn't look like Jesus is in charge. It doesn't look like God rules the world. I know that's what faith is all about. That we believe that Jesus died for us, that he rose from the dead, that he sits at the Father's right hand, that he intercedes for us, and that God reigns as king now. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expected to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Your perspective has changed forever because an event has occurred. An event has occurred. The good news, gospel, is not good advice. It's good news. Something has happened that has changed everything forever. Your patience has paid off. And you say, yeah, doesn't feel like it. And that's why you look to the cross. You look to Jesus, the author, the perfecter, the forerunner of our faith. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be what? Great. For you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Even God loves his enemy. So be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Good news. God's back. Good news. Your God reigns as king. Good news. Y'all have already won. Good news. The meek come out on top. The gentle come out on top. Those who love their enemies come out on top. The meek, the poor, the, the persecuted are victorious. So we might end by saying this, the meek fully embrace the good news of God's reign, living as if future rewards are a present reality. What would the world look like if everyone who said, I believe God now reigns as king through Jesus. I believe that the meek and the gentle and the persecuted and the poor are actually the ones that are receiving it all. What would happen if we embraced those truths and we walked in light of that new reality now? That's what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like, isn't it? And it would actually change the world. The more of us that not only embrace this truth intellectually, but embrace it in life. I've told you the story before about my friend who was a school teacher, and any time daylight savings time would start or stop, and she knew the clocks were gonna have to be changed on Sunday, she would change them after school on Friday afternoon. So all the rest of the day Friday and all day Saturday, she was either an hour ahead or an hour behind. 
But she was willing to make that sacrifice because she wanted to get ready for what was coming. And that's what we're doing. We're living on tomorrow's clock today. We're living knowing that our soldier guards have already lost and we've already won. That's what meekness is all about. It's about embracing the good news of God's reign and living as if future rewards are already a present reality. Let's pray. Father, thank you for another opportunity to consider what our brother, our Lord, our master, our deliverer, Jesus meant when he said that he came to bring good news of your kingdom. Father, give us the faith to embrace that good news and to live in the present in light of the future, to live embracing the future blessings and promises even right now as if they are present realities because they are in Christ Jesus, they are. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.